Hello, all my lovely listeners, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and as always, we are diving into a Colorado true crime story. Now, today's case is actually a suggestion by Robin. And today's episode brings up a lot of legislative questions that has affected the law in Colorado. So without further ado, let's get into it. Lacey Jo Miller was born on August 10, 1982 in Billings, Montana. She moved to Fort Collins, Colorado with her family at the age of six. At the time of our story, she was 20 years old and was a student at the University of Northern Colorado and was pursuing a degree in education. And actually both of her parents were also UNC grads. Lacey was looking forward to starting her career as an elementary teacher, and she was familiar with this career path because her mother, Wendy, was also a teacher. Her freshman year, she lived on campus at the Turner Residence Hall, but then after that year was over, she moved back in with her parents for the summer and for the upcoming semesters. She lived in the home with her mom and stepfather, Mark Cohen. And Lacey also had a nine-year-old brother named Kenyon Krischer, I'm assuming this is maybe a stepbrother, but I am not 100% sure on that. She also had a brother named Jesse that lived with her dad. Lacey was a focused student, and she didn't need much guidance by staff at the university because she was so driven. In addition to attending classes at the University of Northern Colorado, she also worked at a restaurant called Jim's Wings. She worked the counter at the restaurant, taking orders and helping guests, things like that. And above all, Lacey was your typical 20-year-old at the time. She had a crush on Justin Timberlake, and her friends really described her as the life of the party. They also said she was a really compassionate friend, and she was really, really devoted to her faith. Being the life of the party that she was, Lacey spent a lot of time with her really close friends. On the night of January 17th, 2003, Lacey had been hanging out with her friends and getting pizza and just having an overall good time. This good time rolled into the early morning hours of January 18th, and the party kind of wrapped up and she dropped a friend off at Ram's Village Apartments before heading back to her own house. Now, once she had dropped her friend off at the apartments, she had a less than 10 minute drive to her house. Her home was located on Bromba Drive, which was in the Quail Hollow subdivision in southwest Fort Collins. This last sighting of Lacey as she's leaving these apartments is about 1.30 a.m. on January 18th, 2003. After this, Lacey was not seen again. It's assumed that she went missing between 1.30 and 6.30 a.m. on January 18th. A search for Lacey begins immediately. This was unlike her. Her mom and stepdad were expecting her home. They immediately launched into a search to find Lacey. And the first thing of Lacey's that was found was actually her car. Lacey drove a 2002 black Mitsubishi Mirage, and her car was found at around 6.30 a.m. That's why I say we know her window of going missing is between 1.30 at the last time she sighted to 6.30 a.m. when her car is found on January 18th. The chilling thing about the location of her car was it was actually parked 
down the street from her own home. The car was actually only two houses down from her home and it was locked. Lacey's mom, Wendy, immediately knew that her daughter would have not gotten out of the car for just anyone. She would have only gotten out of the car if she'd been told by an authority figure or someone pretending to be one. The following day on January 19th, Lacey's father got missing persons flyers up around town. The next day, January 20th, Wendy, Lacey's mom, gets missing persons leaflets printed and distributed on cars, and the Kinkos in Greeley actually prints these for free. On January 21st, Skythe Energy, a power company in the area, offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to Lacey. And actually, by that evening, the evening of January 21st, just three days after Lacey went missing, there's a suspect in custody. Police got a tip that led them to 22-year-old Jason Peter Clausen, and he was immediately put under surveillance, and the night of January 21st, he was questioned by police. Now, we'll get into where this tip came from a little bit later in the episode, but the tip included a really alarming piece of information. Jason Clausen had had a body in the backseat of his car. According to Jennifer Stanley's reporting for the Greeley Tribune, Clausen told police, quote, There wasn't a body. He was just testing his roommate's loyalty. Every time police tried to ask more, he changed the subject, talking about enlisting in the army, how roommates turned on him, and how relationships with women had crumbled, unquote. This rambling questioning did not turn police off of Clausen's trail. In addition to the tip that they had received about him having a body in his car, another one of Clausen's friends had talked about some of Lacey's possessions being in Clausen's possession now. His friends also talked about how he was a methamphetamine user and really talked about how his drug use had kind of amped up. So the following day on January 22nd, 2003, Clausen was arrested and he was charged with first degree murder and second degree kidnapping. Now the kidnapping charge was a second degree because there was not a ransom note. A ransom note is what amps that up to a first degree kidnapping. But the second degree kidnapping is a class four felony in and of itself. And at the time, police had to be very confident because this was a nobody case. Lacey had not been found. Lacey's body had not been found at this point that Clausen was being charged. Clausen's photo was not released initially until a photo lineup was completed. And this is never fully explained in sources, but I'm assuming that other women may have been accosted by Clausen or pulled over by Clausen, as we will soon find. And I think they were looking to have these women identify him. Clausen was held with no bond. Clausen lived on the west side of Fort Collins at a duplex on 730 Hillcrest Drive. And he lived there with a lot of other young men. And neighbors had noticed the weekend prior to his arrest that people in the home had started to move out. Clausen had also just signed up to join the military and he would have reported the following Monday for service. He told his friends he joined the military because he wanted to kill and he was anxious to get trained and get in a position to do that. He had actually planned to leave town to head to his reporting station the day the press release went out about his arrest. Clausen's case would not remain a nobody case for long. Lacey's body was found just a few days later on January 26th. Her body was found during a search of the Roosevelt National Forest, which is about 40 minutes northwest of her home in Fort Collins. 
The same tip that led them to Clawson also helped lead them to this area, and Lacey's body was found in Cachalapooter Canyon. This canyon is near where Highway 14 and Stove Prairie Road intersect. She was found in a shallow grave. Clawson was familiar with this area as he used to go target shooting there. The body was immediately sent for an autopsy to confirm that it was indeed Lacey's. The following day, on January 27, 2003, Lacey's body was positively identified. According to Sarah Longbien's reporting for the Coloradoan, Lacey's mom, Wendy, said, quote, I'm just so grateful everyone pulled together. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to find a child, unquote. At the time that Lacey's body was found, it was only released to the public that it was a homicide. Initially with this case, there was a gag order on everything. Every detail was kept from the public. So the information I'm about to tell you, the public did not know until Clausen got to the courtroom for trial. But at this point, investigators knew that Lacey had been killed sometime between January 18th and January 21st. Clausen had pretended to be a police officer in order to pull Lacey over and get her out of her vehicle. Once he had abducted her, he forced her to eat sleeping pills. When Lacey was found, she was wearing only her bra, shirt, and underwear. She had been badly beaten and had 20 bruises and cuts, mostly to her head. The Larimer County Coroner concluded that she was killed by this beating. She was then wrapped in plastic and bound with duct tape. Chief Deputy Cliff Rydell believed the murder was sexually motivated, and she most likely was sexually assaulted post-mortem, but her body didn't have really good evidence of this. She did have anal tears but otherwise there was no absolute evidence to prove sexual assault. Post-mortem and once he had gotten her body to the location where it was found, he burned her by pouring gasoline on her body, resulting in second and third degree burns all over her. While it was a tip that led police to Clausen, he had become known to them in the last few months leading up to Lacey's disappearance, and you can see a type of escalation in his activity leading up to her abduction and murder. Clausen had showed an interest in law enforcement really early on in life and was a part of the Fort Collins Police Explorer Scout Program. This program is geared for youth between 16 to 21 and basically shows them the world of law enforcement through smaller roles within the department like secretarial work and ride-alongs and basically just gets their feet dipped into what it's like to work in law enforcement. He was in the program from March 1998 to November 1998 when he was 17 years old. Ironically enough, as part of the Explorer Scout program, he did a ride-along with Ginger Mose. She was Fort Collins' lead detective on Lacey's case. Clausen also worked as a mall security guard, and he applied for Larimer County Sheriff's Office and was denied on August 8, 2002. Reports show that he did not pass the pre-employment integrity interview. This interview looks for deceptive behavior while asking a large range of both personal and duty-related questions. It's essentially a polygraph without the machine. After being turned down by the sheriff's office, on December 13, 2002, he was stopped for a traffic offense, but no ticket was given. On January 3, 2003, a woman living in the home with Clausen asked to be escorted by police while she gathered some of her items from the home because she did not feel comfortable going there alone. On January 4th, Clausen was believed to be involved with the theft of items from a vehicle of his ex-roommate, Daniel Meredith. 
On January 5th, an off-duty female officer named Teresa Clancy was pulled over, and it was found later that no law enforcement ran her plate and no nearby security services pulled her over, and that the interaction was a fake. At the time, the incident was thought to be isolated, but the suspect was a young man, and after the conclusion of Lacey's case, this incident was proved to be Clausen. It was Clausen that had pulled over this off-duty officer. The biggest run-in that police would have with Clausen also happened on this day on January 5th, 2003. They found him outside the Mulberry Inn at 4333 East Mulberry, and they were responding to reports of a man in a ski mask circling the building in his car. When they arrived at the location, he was out of his car, which was a Ford Expedition, and he was walking the property with a bondsman badge on. He also had a flashlight, and the ski mask was in his front pocket. He also had a number of guns with him, which he did possess all of them legally. He had a concealed weapons permit, but that particular night, he had a 45 caliber Springfield semi-auto handgun on his person, and then a 357 Magnum and an AR-15 were both in his vehicle. He also owned a set of handcuffs. He claimed to have the ski mask because the heat in his car was broken, but the report noted that his car was warm inside, like the heat maybe had been running. He claimed that he was there to see Daniel Meredith and his wife, Melissa, and that they both had warrants and he was there for a bond enforcement. But authorities found that neither of the Merediths had any outstanding warrants. So when they pressed him with this information, Clausen changed his story. He said he was trying to pick up a gun and $1,000 that was owed to him by an unidentified man at the hotel. Police also noted that he had a police-style light on his dashboard, and he explained that away too. He said that he was applying to be a firefighter, and he wanted the car to be able to be an emergency vehicle. At the time, Colorado had no law regarding these kind of items, and that means the police were not able to confiscate them. On top of all of this, his plates were also expired. Clausen did not allow them to search the vehicle, but he was calm through the whole interaction and was not arrested that night. Given the laws in place, police had no probable cause for a search of the vehicle and he rejected a voluntary search and nothing he was doing actually added up to a legal charge. But after this interaction, his concealed weapons permit was revoked. Clausen ended up getting arrested on January 13th, 2003 for tampering with a motor vehicle, trespassing, and theft. This was in regards to the January 4th incident with Daniel Meredith's car. He was released on a $3,500 personal recognizance bond within days of Lacey going missing. Clausen's family and friends were shocked by the murder and the chance that Clausen was involved. According to Patrick Clausen's reporting for the Collegian Archives, Clausen's friend Christine Meyer said, quote, The Jason I know is an awesome guy. He'd never disrespect women, unquote. And these sentiments were echoed a lot by other people that knew him. So I know what you're thinking. This seems like a pretty random crime, like Clausen picked a pretty random victim. So how did police get to him? We so often see crimes like this that it's just hard to pinpoint who that person could be when it's pretty random. Well, police's tip that they got came from Clausen's own roommate. 
At 4 a.m. the day of Lacey's disappearance, Clausen was acting really strange, and his roommate Eric Jensen asked him why. Clausen then asked Eric if he really was interested in what was going on, and Eric said, yeah, sure, what's up? Clausen then took him out to his white Ford expedition and showed him Lacey's body in the car. She was in the back seat and was already wrapped in tarps and duct tape. Eric could only see her exposed feet. According to Sarah Longbian's reporting for the Coloradoan, Eric said, quote, I couldn't tell if it was real. I moved closer to touch the feet and my hand just shook away. At that moment, I knew it was real, unquote. At the time, Eric had no idea who the body belonged to. Being that he only saw feet, he didn't even know if the person was a man or a woman. At 11 a.m. on January 18th, Clausen got up and told Eric he was going to Denver. He also told Eric he would leave Lacey's body in his storage unit at Severance Self Storage. Clausen had asked Eric to help him hide Lacey's body, but Eric did not agree. According to Sarah Longbian's reporting for the Coloradoan, Eric said, quote, He told me that he was thinking about taking it up to where we shoot in the mountains or out to the grasslands and maybe out by the cement plant where we used to drag race, unquote. On January 19th, 2003, at around 10 p.m., Clausen hooked up a trailer to his expedition and transported Lacey's body on that. He left town around midnight, and the disposal of her body took him about five hours. Clausen's next ask of Eric was to dispose of a couple of items. They were a sheet and a bucket. The sheet was covered in a dark liquid that had dried on the fabric. Eric went to Fort Collins Police on January 21st with his mom and brother. It was pretty immediately determined that Eric was not involved, but did not go to the police sooner purely out of disbelief. When he went to police, they asked Eric if he could get on a recorded phone call with Clausen. And this is some of the dialogue from that call, according to Sarah Longbian's reporting for the Coloradoan. Clausen says, quote, there is nothing to worry about at all, unquote. Jensen then replies with, quote, yeah, right, dude, dude, if there's nothing to worry about, then why the hell am I not sleeping at night? Tell me how I can sleep, unquote. Clausen then replies with, quote, I don't know because whatever is in your head, you got to deal with that. You got to work on that. I don't know what you think or what you believe happened or what you think was done, unquote. He then, quote, proceeded to tell Jensen that the feet were not real, they were the feet of a mannequin, unquote. Eric told police that he thought that Clausen's issues really started when he was not hired by the Larimer County Sheriff's Office, and that would fit in with the timeline of the other escalations and issues with police that Clausen had after that. In what would be one small blessing in this tragic case, the trial and court proceedings went very quickly. On March 26, 2003, in the Larimer County Courthouse, Clausen waived his right to a preliminary hearing. He also denied his right for bail. At the time, it was wondered if this hearing was waived so that information about the crime would not be made public, making jury selection for the defense more favorable. Judge James H. Hyatt ruled early on not to make information about the case public, and he also ruled that there be no cameras in the courtroom during the proceedings. A source that provided a lot of information on this case for this episode, the Coloradoan, challenged the gag order and also asked for cameras to be in the courtroom. 
The next step in the proceedings would happen on April 3rd, and this would be the arraignment where Clausen would enter his plea. The district attorney's office did have the death penalty on the table, and they would have to make that determination within 60 days after Clausen made his plea. Lacey's mom, Wendy, did not want Clausen to be up for the death penalty. According to Sarah Longbian's reporting for the Coloradoan, Wendy said, quote, I don't want the death penalty. I don't think two deaths make a right. You know, I never thought I would say that, but I would not want that on my hands. I don't think we need to play God any more than this kid needed to play God. It makes me sad, but I don't want to see him die, unquote. While the DA said they'd consider her mother's reaction, it would not be the determining factor in their decision of whether they would go for the death penalty or not in the case. But this would not even end up being something that we'll talk about again in the episode. Clausen pleaded guilty on April 3rd, 2003. And this same day, he was also sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Because he pleaded guilty, he avoided the death penalty. Had he pleaded not guilty and gone to trial, this still would have been a possibility. Lacey's mom, Wendy Cohen, made a very long statement to the Coloradoan after this guilty plea. And it is a very beautiful sentiment and very eloquent, but I wanted to read the last bit of her statement. It says, quote, There's no greater ache than never knowing of this again because someone decided to destroy her for his own gain. There is no justice that can replace a life because there was only one Lacey Joe Miller. I will honor your decision because I respect the system but I count on the fact that one day this matter will be handled in a divine court where no truth is hidden or punishment spared, unquote. Within days of the sentencing, Wendy started to advocate. She wanted a Lacey Law. She was raising money so she could travel and talk about her cause all over the U.S. Wendy created a relationship with Representative Bob McCulsky, And he created a bill that was sponsored by both himself and Senator Steve Johnson, who are both Republicans from Fort Collins. According to Sarah Longbian's reporting for the Coloradoan, it would, quote, increase the penalty of impersonating a peace officer from a class two misdemeanor, which is punishable by up to one year in jail and a fine of $1,000 to a class one misdemeanor. That would increase the punishment up to 18 months in jail and a fine of $5,000, unquote. This became known as House Bill 1304, and Governor Bill Owens signed the bill into effect, and Wendy was at attendance at this signing. The bill went into effect on May 1st, 2004. Wendy's next step was to continue to work with legislature to make the offense a felony, and also look at what are called blue light laws regarding the ownership of police paraphernalia. According to Sarah Longbien's reporting for the Coloradoan, Wendy also started a petition that called for, quote, The petition proposes that anyone possessing police-style lights who does not work in law enforcement should be charged at a minimum Class 1 misdemeanor. The lights would be confiscated on the spot by authorities. In addition, anyone possessing or using any other police paraphernalia, such as badges or car emblems, would be charged a Class 2 misdemeanor. Those items would also be taken away, unquote. The month after Lacey's disappearance, seven county agencies got together with the media to show their badges and have them photographed for reference. This included the Colorado State Patrol and police departments in Fort Collins, Colorado State University, Loveland, Windsor, Berthoud, and Estes Park. 
But given new legislature in Colorado, it actually, unfortunately, didn't deter people from still impersonating police officers. Shortly after Lacey's murder, as soon as the end of May 2003, a man was reported after pulling over a 19-year-old woman near Castle Rock, Colorado, just south of Denver. And after the legislation was passed in November 2004, 46-year-old Bruce Clazer stopped two drivers for speeding while pretending to be with the state patrol. Blazer was found to have bipolar disorder and was ordered to complete 90 hours of community service after the incident. But despite the tragedy of Lacey's murder, her friends and family looked on her life and memories with her with joy. Sarah Longbian's reporting for the Coloradoans said that Wendy said of Lacey's services, quote, I have just made up my mind. I'm not going to let it destroy me. I've got a good life. I've got good students and I've got a good family. I'm not going to destroy who I am. I'm going to move forward and honor her and have a great send off. So we're planning that, unquote. 1,500 people ended up attending Lacey's funeral, which was held at Resurrection Fellowship. Since Lacey's death, a University of Northern Colorado scholarship was created in her name, and Lacey's mom created Two Hearts, the Lacey Joe Miller Foundation, which focuses on safety education. Nicole Sundin, a former Denver police officer, helps create the curriculum for the foundation. If you'd like to donate to the foundation, donations can be mailed to 3600 Mitchell Drive, number 50B in Fort Collins, Colorado. Wendy has continued to work to get laws like these passed throughout the country. At the time of Lacey's murder, four states had laws regarding impersonating an officer, and these laws were all felonies. More states have started to have these laws now, but as of 2013, the count was still less than half of the United States. In the 10 years after Lacey's death from 2003 to 2013, this law on impersonating an officer came into effect in 25 cases in Larimer County alone. According to Sarah Longbian's reporting for the Coloradoan, Lacey's very close friend, Andrea Rutherford, said, quote, We all feel fortunate to be her friend. It doesn't end here. She'll always be with us, unquote. Okay, guys, so let's get into some thoughts. Now, I know not all of my listeners listen to this part of the podcast, which I totally get, but if you usually turn off around this time, please hang on for a few more minutes. I actually have some more info about the case in my musings today, just because it's pieces of information that didn't fit into the story really organically. And at the very end of the episode, I'm going to talk about what you can do if you're in this kind of situation where you're pulled over and you're not sure it's legit. So hang in there with me for a few more minutes if you typically turn the episode off at this point. I promise there's some good information here. So we have a lot to unpack about Lacey's case, and her case has not been covered by many people. The best that Robin, who suggested the case and I can find, is that only one other podcast has covered this, and it looks like they're not even active anymore. So as you know, it makes it even more important to me to cover her case. And I have lots of thoughts on it, so let's dive in. Musing number one. So I mentioned that Clausen was familiar with where he dumped Lacey's body, but I did not tell you he was familiar with the area where Lacey's home was. His friend actually lived at the end of her cul-de-sac, which was just seven houses down. Lacey and her family had moved onto the street about a year and a half prior to her murder. But the friend who lived at this house that was seven houses down, Kevin Mice, was not sure if Clausen had actually met her or knew Lacey at all. 
musing number two. So I talked about how when Clawson was charged, it was initially a no-body case. They'd not found Lacey's body yet. They were going just on what evidence they had. And that tells you how confident they were in their evidence and how confident they were in Erica Jensen's testimony. Because this, you know, no-body cases are always tough to prove. So they were really confident to pull off a first-degree murder with him with no body. And here they found Lacey's body and had Clausen not pleaded guilty, they probably would have gotten a guilty verdict on this case. Musing number three. I want to touch base on the escalation of Clausen's activity with police and activity overall in a criminal sense. Because it really reminds me of the Gilbert Archibald story in episode 41. They both kind of are, all their friends are like, we'd never expect this. But in the meantime, there's all these run-ins that they're having in the meantime with law enforcement or with other people. That's this very clear escalation. It also made me think of Gilbert Archibald in that they both had the training to pull off what they were going to do. Clausen had this background with looking into law enforcement and probably had some good information on how to get away with a crime. Whereas in Archibald's case, the one of the security guards that he disarmed talks about how easily he did that and asked if, you know, he possibly had had military background in order to pull that off. So some interesting parallels between those two stories. If you haven't listened to episode 41, I definitely recommend it. It's a, it's a very interesting case in and of itself. Musing number four. In addition to other evidence that they found against Clausen, police found a disposable camera in his bedroom. And when they developed the film, it actually had a picture of Lacey laying face down on Clausen's bed. And police assumed that this picture was taken once she was deceased. But the thing that really caught me about this piece of information was this case took place in 2003. And while Technology was still on the move. The use of disposable cameras was getting less and less at this point. So it made me wonder, we know that Polaroids are very common with pedophiles because it's a way to get those pictures without ever having to go through any kind of process. You're not storing them on a computer, et cetera, et cetera. So it just kind of made me wonder with him having a disposable camera, if he had done this before and... You know, we know he was comfortable impersonating officers. He had pulled over a cop and while it was a red flag, you know, not been really identified right away as a fake. On the other hand, it also seems like kind of a dumb thing to do because you would have to get the film developed at some point and you would have somebody potentially having their eyes on that evidence. So it just was an odd piece of information that really struck me that the use of disposable camera and the use of him taking pictures during that process, it seems like it's either something that he could have been comfortable with doing or it could have been some kind of thing that fueled him to do that and had he gotten away with this could have, you know, caused him to continue to do crimes like this in order to get kind of that satisfaction out of it. Musing number five. I know you all are freaking out about him not being charged at the hotel when he was walking around being a creep and lying to police. Well, according to the Coloradoan, Larimer County Sheriff Jim Alderden said at the time, quote, certainly the circumstances would raise a person's suspicion. We have had some reasonable suspicion to take him in. It would take more than reasonable suspicion. It would take probable cause, unquote. And this is totally true. As much as you could maybe be mad at police about this, the way that our country works is you have to have probable cause and what you're doing has to fit within the realms of the law. 
And that's a great thing about our country, because if that weren't the case, police could just arrest you for any good reason. So... As much as this might be frustrating that he was not caught then and could have potentially kept Lacey from being killed, unfortunately, it just didn't fit within the confines of Colorado law to be able to take him in. And you have to also understand that not only would that probable cause be to arrest him, but also to get charges to stick. Otherwise, you'd be taking in people into custody just to have the charges not stick and then go back out. And that's a waste of time and taxpayer money. Musing number six. I will say authorities caught something by not hiring him as a sheriff officer and giving him a real badge because who knows what he could have done with that. And we can tell through this story that obviously lying is an issue with Klaus and he seems to pivot his stories really quickly, whether it's with Eric, his roommate, about that the feet he saw was just a mannequin or it's with the police when he's creeping around the Mulberry Inn and actually no, he's just meeting a guy to buy a gun. They obviously caught something during his deceptive trait interview and good on them for not giving him a real badge. Musing number seven. Clausen is one of those people that we find really interesting because he obviously can compartmentalize these urges from his normal day-to-day life. I mean, you had, as I said earlier in the episode, a friend who was a woman saying he would never disrespect women. And this guy pulled a woman out of her car and what we can assume is in some way sexually assaulted her, killed her, and dumped her in the middle of nowhere and burned her body. So he clearly had a way to keep these thoughts out of his day-to-day life. Musing number eight, and you guys know I'm going to say this because I say it anytime we have a case like this. On top of being murdered, the desecration of a body just, it just breaks my heart. And here it's just like, the trifecta. So you have him driving around with her in his car, which actually kind of reminded me, I don't remember if this was a Ridgeway murder or another murder, but there was a story in a case about a man who did this and it explained to police why the woman had more decomposition near her head and face. And it was because she was on the floorboard and she was near the pedals. So she was near where it was getting hot and that part of her body decomposed faster than the rest of her body. Now I could be incorrect in thinking that was a Gary Ridgeway victim, but I do specifically remember that um, coming out of a case because it explained some decomposition that they had found in her body that was really confusing. But anyways, back to Lacey's case. So you have him driving around with her in his car Then you have him putting her body on the trailer, which is pretty much exposed. So you just have this deceased body exposed as you're driving 40 minutes away from town. And that's just unbelievable. And then you have the burning of her body. And so it really is the trifecta of desecration of her body. And Lacey's dad actually said something about this to Jennifer Stanley at the Greeley Tribune. Her father, Dave Miller, who lives in Greeley, told the judge before sentencing that, quote, his final horrific and satanic act was to pour gasoline on Lacey's body in an attempt to destroy her beauty with fire. He failed in his attempt as her face and hair were left intact. She was as beautiful in death as she was in life, unquote. Musing number nine, I have to say, good job, Eric. This would have to be a hard decision, but he clearly did the right thing. And you have to wonder, with him not going in sooner, some of it had to be disbelief, but it also had to be the question of, he's essentially living with a murderer. Could Clausen hurt him too? 
And on top of it, because this case was kind of a random thing in who Clausen chose, that if not for Eric Jensen, the roommate who gave the tip, would Lacey's death still be unsolved? Would her body still be missing? I mean, at this point, we do not know for sure or have the murder weapon in this case. And it's totally plausible to think that without Eric, this could have gone unsolved. So good for him for doing the right thing and for going to police. Musing number 10. So some of you might have been stuck by the DA and them not, you know, taking into complete consideration how Wendy Lacey's mom felt about the death penalty. Now you have to think about precedent and how that affects future cases, that you're not only making that decision based on the family, but you have to think of what cases have come before that, what precedent has been set, and should something like this happen in the future, your case is going to affect how that's handled. So you may think that that was maybe not super collaborative with the family, but you do have to think in the bigger realm of how that affects other cases. Musing number 11. This is one of those cases where like nobody wins. Neither family wins. Patrick Clausen reported for the Collegian Archives that, quote, when the court recessed, Wendy Cohen, Lacey's mother, made her way through the crowd and embraced Clausen's mother, unquote. I mean, both of these people are losing a child. Wendy and Dave have lost their child in the most horrific way, while Clausen's family has lost their child in a way that not only affects him, but also, I mean, you're walking around and your son's a murderer. That's something that never goes away. And it sadly doesn't really get a lot of resolution for anyone. So as is normal in these cases, justice doesn't necessarily mean resolution. Musing number 12. I will give Clausen some credit because he owned up to what he did and he did not drag out this court proceeding for the family. They didn't have to relive these terrible details over and over and over. So I will give him some credit as a human for that, that at least he pleaded guilty, he's owning up to what he did, and he's allowing both his family and Lacey's family to begin healing and moving on with their life. Okay, guys, we're getting near the end of my thoughts here, I promise. (laughs) Musing number 13. This also brings up the issue of the ease of pretending to be an officer. You know, and it's so sad to live in a world that, you know, you're supposed to be able to trust police officers and people like this make that not possible. So law enforcement has said that protocol for unmarked, ununiformed officers is to make traffic stops as little as possible and only when totally necessary. So you can kind of assume if you're being pulled over by an unmarked vehicle that it there's a good chance that it is not legitimate. But, you know, retired badges turn up on eBay all the time. You can get security badges at police outfitters. It's so easy to get this kind of paraphernalia. And let's be honest, none of us in the public are familiar enough with what police badges look like to be able to spot out one that's, you know, not legit. And you look at places like Fort Collins and Denver, you have a lot of cities that are packed really closely together. So you may know what a Denver police badge looks like, but you might not know what a Thornton one looks like when you pass, you know, three exits over and you're in Thornton now. So it really is difficult to really have the public be able to take control of that situation. I will talk about that more in a minute. But it's just sad that this really tarnishes that for those who wear the badge for the right reason. Musing number 14. 
So here's the big question. What do you do when pulled over and you're not sure it's legit? So in Stacey Nick's reporting for the Coloradoan, the Colorado State Patrol and Colorado State University Police gave the following tips. The first is if you don't feel safe, don't automatically pull over. You can drive the speed limit to a well-lit and public space such as a gas station or heck if it, you're even nearby a police station. Don't just stop somewhere that's dark or maybe isolated. You Even if it's a real police officer behind you, you can do that and explain that. That is totally fine. Don't roll down your car window or open your car doors. You can tell the officer that you're afraid and ask to see his or her identification. But like I said, don't open your window or your door. Do that through a closed window, but speak up so if the officer is legitimate, they can hear you. If you have a cell phone, you can call the agency in your area and they can check the status of that officer and see if that stop is legitimate. If you don't have a cell phone, you can ask the officer to have a marked car respond to verify that the contact is legitimate. These guys that pull over people out of the blue often don't have a partner in crime. So that will help you know that somebody is responding and they are within the network of an agency. One that I'm going to add on for me personally and something that I do every day is as soon as you get in your car, I don't care where you're going, I don't care if you're going to the grocery store, I don't care. Lock your doors as soon as you get in your car. This would help in a situation like this. Say somebody pulled you over and they're not legitimate and you're going through these steps. You know, they could fling your car door open and attack you, but they can't do that if your doors are locked. And it's just good practice overall, just in a lot of different situations. So I would add that one in as well. Musing 15. This is my last one. And this, I think, is something I've echoed in other episodes as well of you hear about these things happening close to home. I mean, her car could have been dropped there later, but it's most likely that Lacey was pulled over, quote unquote, by Clausen two doors down from her own house. So always keep your guard up. We get, you know, busy doing things or we get close to home and we're tired and we're ready to be home. Always be alert. You hear about accidents always happen closer to the home. Just pay attention and keep yourself safe. Okay, guys. First, I have to thank Robin so much for this recommendation. It is not an easy case to cover, but it does bring up a lot of questions that still need to be handled in legislature. And I think is a safety concern that is not talked about enough in how to handle that if you're in that situation. So Robin, thank you so much for the recommendation. And guys, keep the suggestions coming. Like I said, we still have like another month full of listener suggestions that are just really important cases to cover and some that I wasn't familiar with that you guys brought to my attention. As always, please get in contact with me. I love talking with you guys. You can get me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also go to the contact us form at altitudecrime.com and that's got a direct email for me. Please, 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 if you still have it open and you haven't already, follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform or hit that subscribe and bell icon if you're listening on YouTube because I have awesome listeners on YouTube too. This will help other people find the podcast. I'm real excited because I ran into somebody the other day and a friend of mine was telling them I did a podcast and they asked the name of it and she was like, oh, I just saw that on my blah, blah, blah. So the algorithm is working, people. Let's keep it moving. As always, you can find source materials for this episode at altitudecrime.com. And I have added some other products within my Amelia Allen Enterprises that includes some photography and poetry that I do in addition to the podcast. 
Well, guys, thanks so much for sticking around to hear Lacey's story. It's very important and brings up a lot of really great questions about our society and things that we need to do to continue to keep everyone safe. And I always appreciate you spending part of your week with me. And I cannot wait to tell you another story next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 47, The Murder of Lacey Miller, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.